Welcome to another episode of Imperfect Leaders. We're the first and only podcast that invites the most powerful leaders in the country and asks them to be totally vulnerable and share their flaws, their imperfections, and of course, their wisdom. Our goal isn't to embarrass guests, rather it's to inspire our listeners to become more self-aware and to get an early start developing the exact leadership skills valued by the country's most admired organizations. If you like the show, we invite you to subscribe for free at www.imperfectleaders.com. And until then, sit back and enjoy the show. Marco Zappacosta is the co-founder and chief executive of a revolutionary company called Thumbtack, a marketplace of professionals who can take care of virtually any and every need you have in your home. Unlike the founders of Facebook and Google, Marco didn't catch lightning in a bottle. Marco's a grinder. He's been at it for a decade now, fine-tuning the business and making it the category leader, but it took time to get there. But what's it mean to be a grinder? You don't read a lot about this leadership style in the Wall Street Journal, but you should. Marco's leadership style isn't one of extreme rah-rah charisma. He has more of an even-keeled, vulnerable, thoughtful leadership style. It's completely authentic and it sets the right tone at the top for the entire company and culture. It's not hard to see why the company is totally committed to continuous improvement and innovation. It's not hard to see why Thumbtack has caught the attention of the country's best venture capitalists like Sequoia, G Squared, and Tiger. It's not hard to see why Marco is one of the most well-respected CEOs in Silicon Valley. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. I want to know more about this amazing company. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a customer, but I'm pretty sure I should be. Uh, I'm used to living in Manhattan where everything in my condo is taken care of. Uh, you had a superintendent and they fixed things when it broke. Uh, but I bought a home in Colorado a few years ago, and I just can't believe how much goes wrong with the home. Uh, so with that in mind, tell me what Thumbtack does and why I need to start using it. Yeah, so we're the superintendent for everybody else, right? It's for people who don't live in Manhattan in sort of apartment buildings. And, you know, the reality is homes are most people's biggest investment. They're certainly the most complicated thing that you're responsible for. And there's nobody and nothing that helps you with that. And so Thumbtack is that solution. We help homeowners effortless, effortlessly care for everything in and around their homes. Um, and this is something um, that we do by helping you find and hire the right pro, but increasingly also by knowing what you should be doing, when and why, and having the confidence to really invest in your home proactively as well. So, I mean, I guess I'm kind of a cynical guy having lived in Manhattan for so long. How can I trust that you guys have really vetted the vendors that you're recommending? Yeah. So we think of uh, sort of trust and safety in these two ways. First off, when a pro joins the platform, we want to ensure that they are who they say they are, that they're trustworthy, that we sort of know who they are and ensure that they meet our standards. So that's sort of the like static verification that everyone goes through on the way in. But then there's the much more important sort of trust that comes from the reviews on the platform. <laughs> and Thumbtack is unique in that we help facilitate these connections at a really fine grained level and so we have a really deep insight into not just um, who you're looking for, but the job that you're trying to do. And through that, when we show you reviews, we're showing you reviews for pros who have done likely that job in your neighborhood, often multiple times. And it's this combination of being sure who this person is and that they're trustworthy, 
And secondly, that your community of neighbors and, you know, peers have shared great experiences. And through that, you can be very confident. And then finally, we sort of stand behind all our pros with a guarantee. So in case something were to go wrong, uh, we're there to help. But most importantly, it's a reflection of our confidence in our pros and the work that they do um, that we stand behind it all. Yeah, and, and I need this so bad. I just had the biggest nightmare with my water heater breaking uh, and people telling me, you know, when I bought the house, it's probably going to break. It's probably going to flood your basement and you're probably going to spend a ton of money fixing it. And sure enough, I did. Yeah. I wish I would have had somebody there that I trusted proactively to tell me to replace that. I mean, are you guys moving in the direction where say one person can be my concierge, almost like, you know, a Mayo Clinic or a Cleveland Clinic, you know, where there are a bunch of specialists that are all communicating on your platform so I can get a better holistic approach to my problems before they actually happen and flood my basement? Yeah, so that's where we're going. So for the first 10 years of this business, we focused on one thing, which was to help you find and hire pros. Um, if you think about, you know, your life and, and the challenge that it's been to connect with great pros, like you can appreciate that it's sort of endemic. It's a broken industry. It's a, you know, uh, a shame on society that we're so bad at this. Um, and that was our animating purpose over these last 10 years. And I feel like we have created something unique and uniquely capable at helping you find and hire. But one of the sort of lessons um, sort of through COVID and, and this kind of rescrambling uh, of the world was, you know, the importance of the home and how alone the homeowner was. And yes, we were a tool to find and hire, but without helping a homeowner have some guidance in terms of what should be done when and why, that was actually keeping a lot of people from doing jobs through us. And so we are now kind of doing both of those together, um, you know, giving you guidance for caring for your home, and secondly, helping you hire with confidence for whatever you want and need done. And through that, we have this sort of um, understanding of your home that nobody else does. So people know about the parcel of land that you might own, but nobody really has an understanding of <clears throat> the make and model of the appliances, their state of repair, um, your dreams and ambitions for what you want to do with this home. And through that, we can really help you, you know, plan and invest in this home in a new way. Yeah, and just hearing you talk, I can now see why this company has exploded in growth and why I am about to be a serious customer. Um, I need it, no doubt about that. But let's rewind the clock. I can imagine that this kind of business, you need some amazing leaders and you personally need leadership skills. Um, so, I, But first, I want to hear your personal story. You know, I want to hear a little bit about you know your values and how they were formed. Where were you born and raised and what were your parents like? And, you know, what was your childhood like? Yeah, so I, um, I grew up in the Bay Area um, and my parents are both Italian and they came here in 1976. Uh, they're engineers and my mom got a postdoc uh, position at IBM and they offered her a position in Poughkeepsie or Palo Alto. And mom chose wisely and That's they went for what they thought would be a few years and then um, never left. And the three of us were born there. And so first generation American. Um, and interestingly, my parents, you know, worked in the tech industry, were entrepreneurs, and that was kind of, um, yeah, my dinner table conversation in some way. 
are they more, would you say, kind of left brain analytic engineers or the right brain creative Italian Renaissance type? Uh, I think you got you have one of each. Um, I'd probably peg my father as more that right brain Renaissance thinker and my mom more as the left brain engineer. So either you either got the best of both worlds or stuck in the middle. Let's say the best of both worlds. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so. And so, so you're in the West Coast. The you know the the they made the right choice. Why did you decide to go to the East Coast for college? Yeah. So, admittedly, um, something I've learned about myself over the years is I'm very gut driven. And I'm sort of uh, not someone who's sort of necessarily methodical, explicitly in their decision making, but it's something that's very intuitive. And I went on a college tour. Um, with a buddy of mine from high school and having never been to New York, we went there for two days uh, to visit NYU and Columbia. And I fell in love uh, with New York, I think first and foremost, and just the energy and the excitement and just, it felt like the center of the universe. So it's where I wanted to be. You decided uptown for Columbia instead of the West Village in uh, NYU? I did. I really was drawn to uh, the Great Books program um, and sort of the emphasis that Columbia has on sort of the Western canon in some sense. Um, and then I went to college thinking I wanted to be a, you know, research scientist, bench scientist, and um, they had a program in neuroscience, which I was really excited about. Uh, so that's what drew me there. So how the hell did you end up starting Thumbtack? I thought I read somewhere that you were more interested in something like social security reform or creating a financial services app like Met. How did, how did you end up with Thumbtack? Yeah, so the path does go through pension reform. Um, so I, uh, no, and social security reform. I, I went to school thinking I wanted to study neuroscience. I studied it and I loved it. And then I went to go work in a lab. Um, and this is an era which in some sense is changing now, which I'm a little jealous of, where there was a lot less automation and sort of leverage that researchers had. And so the life of a grad student and postdoc is uh, very narrow. And it's one that I'm glad that people love doing and are great at, but it was not for me. Um, the subject matter I love, but the work was not a fit for my interest. And so it was disorienting and <clears throat> sort of wandered around a little bit. And one of the things I was curious about was um, pension reform for whatever reason. And I wrote a couple of op-eds for my uh, student newspaper, which is sort of embarrassing to mention, uh, about pension reform. And unbeknownst to me, my future co-founder was similarly passionate about pension reform. And he went so far as to start a nonprofit that was, um, you know, a student uh, advocate uh, in the Social Security debate, sort of saying, hey, this is a debate where Ultimately, the impact is going to be felt by young people, but it's dominated by sort of uh, the retirees or close to retirees, and that doesn't make any sense. And I joined that, took a semester off from college, much to my parents' dismay. Um, and then, you know, we didn't call it a startup, but it was. We raised a million dollars, signed up you know, these 13,000 students across the country, and got a front page profile on the Wall Street Journal. And then obviously nothing, we accomplished nothing. Um, zero happens uh, is the end of the story. Uh, and that was on one hand, very revealing and how fun it was to build something out of nothing, but also very revealing in how 
sort of the political arena was not one that I was sort of interested in operating in. It's just so you, you control nothing. Um, and so this is where I think having the, you know, privilege of seeing tech companies get built sort of up close, I could sort of say, Hey, you know, we can have similar impact by building a technology company and sort of, we reoriented our energy that way. Um, and began doing in some sense, what Silicon Valley tells you what not to do, you know, decide to start a business and then go hunt, uh, for an idea. I think that's tried and true. Microsoft and Amazon did it work great for them. I think it can, it can work great, uh, still today, but thankfully we sort of said to ourselves, um, what's the biggest problem we think we can solve with technology and, and one that we have a shot at doing and one that we feel like is inevitably going to be solved. And here you are, you know, 2007, eight, nine, you know, e-commerce is a thing. Uh, it's not like new at that point, it's becoming established. And I think to our generation, it's sort of like, oh sure, this is how you're going to shop for everything. Cause it's way better. Um, and yet when you looked at how people were finding and hiring pros that really hadn't evolved at all. Um, so you know, offline solutions like yellow pages or classifieds got moved online, but no one had tried to reimagine what this experience could be like for the sort of digitally native age. And so here we said, Hey, this is an enormous problem. Uh, it's about, you know, human capital and its ability to sort of come to market and be discovered and be transacted. Um, it is really broken. Everybody says it's an awful experience and it feels like technology is inevitably going to solve that. And, why not us? So, and then, yeah, why not? So then what was the process like of convincing investors? I mean, uh, you know, I, I heard through the grapevine that you struggled a bit with that series A, what was that process like? Um, yeah, I mean, the thing to remember about raising money is, um, it starts with just a dream and it ends with just a lot of data. And over the years, the ratio of dream to data, changes and early on it's just a dream and so the people who back you are the ones who know you right friends and families and former colleagues and you know here we raised um from really some fantastic angels in silicon valley and really helped us um kind of get going excuse me but uh when we went to go raise our series a we sort of didn't understand the like dream to data uh, ratio that these series a investors were looking for specifically around sort of proof of monetization. And uh, we've done We've done a lot of work around acquiring customers and pros and building liquidity in this marketplace, but we hadn't yet really invested in monetizing the experience. And we got a ton of pushback sort of saying, Hey, we respect what you've built, but we don't believe that you're going to sort of build a business out of this. And that was tough. And um, that was really tough. So, so, okay. So you built a platform, you proved that it could work. You got, you know, some people in this marketplace, but they didn't really buy into your business model and you could make money. So to ask an obvious question, how did this early rejection and feedback make you feel? And a less obvious question, how did you handle those feelings? You know, what did you learn from those painful rejections? Yeah. I mean, it sucked a lot. Um, we went over like 42 before we got a couple yeses. So yeah, uh, that you still remember the number is telling. Um, and I'll, I'll say I never lost faith, um, in our idea, right. In our vision and the inevitability of this, uh, outcome. 
but I certainly lost faith in my own ability uh, to be either sort of the leader or the part of the team that helped make this happen. And that's a very crushing thought, right? To like have this dream that maybe is sort of slipping through your fingers. Um, the thing that I think we really learned and proved to ourselves in that moment though, was that we really were mission driven. Like you only take that 41st and 42nd meeting because you're really convinced uh, in this idea. And, you know, more poignantly even, uh, I think we were like 13 people at that time. And I want to say like seven or eight had given back some salary at the end or, or a lot of their salary. You know, four people were living at the office um, for more shares to give the company more time to get this round done. And that is like a very searing event to go through with a small group of people. And it really sets your DNA in a very mission driven way when that is kind of like one of the founding events. Yeah, I mean, in, in a sense, although not as serious, it, it kind of reminds me of an actor that's not getting work and, you know, going to all these auditions and getting rejected. And they're asking themselves, should I, should I stay in Hollywood or move back home with my parents? But for a founder, like you said, there's an added pressure, right? Aside from that personal devastation and insecurity, you're leading a whole team of people. So, I mean, how do you kind of convince everyone else to hang in there and stay for the rest of the journey when you, like you say, have your own self-doubt personally? I mean, do you feel guilty or is that what you mean by it being mission-driven or what do you do as a leader in that? Um, well, I think I learned a lot in that. Um, there's sort of two memories I have. And here we're talking uh, 20... 11. Um, and one was, you know, first I had this idea that I could just sort of protect the team from the ups and downs of those conversations. And I was either doing them a favor or being sort of, uh, a good leader by doing that. Um, but that obviously is the opposite effect, right? It just breeds worry and, distrust when you're like, Hey, what's, what's going on? Give me like, is it good? Was it bad? What are we hearing? And especially when it like, it's taking longer than it should. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, if it just happens quickly, then who cares? But, uh, once you start to struggle and what I realized that being much more open about sort of what I was learning, the challenges, really engaging people in a, um, sort of, surprisingly transparent way. I think this is not the typical advice. Um, we just got stronger and mm -hmm. that worry of sort of, Hey, I'm going to bring people into the fold and the ups and downs are going to cause somebody to sort of worry and quit, um, was the exact opposite of what actually happened, which is you get more trust and loyalty because people feel bought in and not certain that it will work, but bought in to trust in the process. And that is, really powerful. So, so it's less about being salesy, rah, rah in shielding them. You think from this bad news to keep their morale up, but actually the opposite you're saying and giving them all the, the facts and bad news and being transparent and letting the chips fall where they may, because these are smart people on your team and yeah. it actually builds support by doing that. Exactly. Yep. And what does it mean? I mean, it reminds me of sort of, what I read and write about in terms of being an authentic leader. What does that mean to you? 
Um, I mean, I, I just try to treat people with the respect that I would want to be treated with and not respect just in the common courtesy and decorum, but if you're asking me to invest in this business, my time and my effort and my energy, and you're putting before me hard challenges, um, then I am owed the context I need to do that and the trust to know things even when maybe they're not, you know, clean cut or finished or uh, all perfect because uh, they're still sort of hairy. Um, and I think that is something that I try and keep in mind and use that as a way of, you know, treating people as partners. Um, and I think, I, I guess, I've always gotten the feedback uh, with new leaders that come in that, you know, we're surprisingly transparent and isn't, you know, such and such bad thing going to happen. And, you know, there've been times, sure, where uh, maybe it caused some issues, but the vast majority of the time, it has this really endearing and solidifying effect of bringing people together. And so, yeah. Yeah, I love that. And how would you describe your leadership style? Um, I think I would describe it as values driven. Um, so I think something I care a lot about is that we as an organization have values that mean something and they show up in the moments that our values are most questioned or challenged. And that really proves that they are fundamental to how we operate, how we make decisions, how we make trade-offs. And through that, people can sort of like know what to expect from us and trust us and know how to participate as a partner in the business. So I think, yeah, values driven is probably how I'd describe it. And in, in, in from my experience, you know, companies often spend a lot of time coming up with what their core values mean, and they try to make decisions in line with those core values, but it doesn't always work like that. I mean, can you remember, and I hate to be a pain, um, mm -hmm. do you ever remember a time where you've had to make a decision that cut across you know, what you deeply believe in? Well, so I actually to argue, <laughs> we architected our values to, in some sense, be in tension, um, right? It's not like all the values neatly line up against each other. Overdoing one at the expense of another is a real issue. Um, and so I'd argue that when you are put in a position where your values can't speak to the decision at hand in a useful way, you have an incomplete or uh, sort of ineffective set of values. Um, and I think one of the benefits of having gone through this exercise sort of twice, we created our values once probably like four or five years into the business. And then again, in like 2020, so 10 ish years into the business, um, we got sort of smarter about how to set it up. And at first, you know, our values were really about defining how we were different and how we were unique and how we wanted people to sort of understand us and through that sort of operate in the business. Um, and that is useful in helping people sort of who are on their way in, know what the culture is going to be like, understand how to navigate the culture. Um, but it wasn't as powerful as sort of the next time where we really thought about, you know, who do we want to be? Uh, how do we want to be at our best? Um, and through that, create a set of values that should 
hopefully kind of encapsulate the ways that you should operate at your best, uh, which isn't to say that they're in perfect alignment, like they're in contrast and intention, but that's on you as a leader and operator to get right. Think about it. And are, are your values sort of um, framed in either like uh, we want to do this, demonstrate this behavior, even if it means giving up why? So like we, we want to pursue safety, even if it means giving up profitability. No, ours are uh, more definitive, but also a little bit more spiritual. So you know, the first is lead with why. Um, you know, the idea that we're hypothesis driven, that we work in service of our customers and pros, and ultimately we don't know exactly what's going to work, uh, but we sort of reason from first principles, make hypotheses and learn. Um, so that why is really fundamental to how we work. The second is make it count. And here, you know, it's a, a reminder that we can't just think he, uh, be here and reason about this problem. We ultimately have to deliver results. We have to ship something. We have to get something out the door that helps our customers and pros. And I think even these first two are intention. Um, and I, we, you know, we did that purposefully. Um, third is own it, uh, which really speaks to a culture of responsibility. Um, we don't want you to be looking to be told what to do. We want you to take ownership for your role and responsibilities and, and drive it, lead it. Um, the fourth is choose teamwork. Um, and that highlights that you know, what we're trying to do is way bigger than what any one person can do. So it's only by choosing teamwork that we can actually get this done or have any shot at getting this done. And that's an active choice. And again, that can go contra owning it or making it count. And we did that on purpose. Um, and then lastly is just say what you mean, um, which is about being respectful, being direct, um, and really just having the, the underlying respect and confidence in someone to just tell them what you mean and don't harbor, you know, feelings and thoughts that you're not putting out there. Don't say things behind somebody's back that you wouldn't say to their face, like things that we can always, you know, think about or hear, but try to actually do it. Um, so those are the five. And so you can hear how they are sort of intention. I think that's very useful. Yeah, I, I love that. And I can tell by the fact, and I've, I've spoken to so many CEOs that could not in a million years name all of their values, even though, you know, it's- That's all, why we stuck to five. Yeah, uh, you know, they, yeah, but you didn't, you, I just want to say, you did not have a cheat sheet. I, I guarantee you, you were involved in the process of creating those values very closely. Yes, I was. Yeah, and, and you know, as a way to highlight that sort of values oriented leadership, in some ways, this is the, these are the types of things that I think I can help have the biggest impact on the business and you know being over a thousand people i'm not working every problem i'm not on every call with every pro like um it's much more in these sort of principles and um yeah more foundational things uh, that i can really help so i want to keep pushing forward around the challenges of leadership uh i, I once invited a sequoia partner a guy named not your guy but a guy named doug leone um, yeah, speak to that's incredible. Yeah, he's amazing. So I invited him to speak to a bunch of students, and um, they 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 love the guy, even though he was calling them out on just about everything they were saying, <laughs> and they they couldn't get enough of him. But one of the things he yeah. said stuck with stood with me was he said that he likes that Sequoia in general likes to invest in founders that can tell their story and their pitch in as few words as possible. 
And I love that advice, but I find it terrifying in some ways because it's really hard to do. And, you know, I can already tell you're a great communicator, but were you always that way? I mean, how did you sharpen your communication skills over time? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'll admit the you asking this question reminds me of pitching Sequoia in their Series A, and they are um, an intense bunch, as you can imagine, having spent some time with Doug. And back then, these pitches were live, and they were famous for filling the room with all these partners. And what's amazing about Sequoia, and I remember Doug sitting at the front of the table, right directly across me to the left, they um brian the, the partner that led the deal had sent around an investment memo and they'd all read it and they had like highlighted parts of it they had written questions and you know there were 15 20 people like that and then you have 15 dugs uh grilling you for 60 minutes uh the real trial by fire uh, but i really admire them as an institution and feel like i learned uh, a lot uh from them um in terms of just getting better at it i think a big part is um just doing it and and being comfortable and confident enough to get reps um i think there's just i think a lot of people don't want to get up and try and that sort of inhibits them getting better um because it is something that you got to just do well let's go back to the you know your parents and this uh sort of mix of left brain uh, analytic engineering skills and right brain creative italian renaissance kind of folks what about like introverts and extroverts? I mean, can introverts become effective communicators and good leaders in general? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I think, um, you know, having observed a lot of leaders, um, I think they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Some lead from the front, some lead from the back, some lead bottoms up, some lead tops down, some are great written communicators, some are great verbal communicators, some are great sort of one-on-one -on -one in conversation, some are better in a scripted presentation. And I don't think there's one formula. Obviously the role and the type of business and you know the makeup of the job will dictate a little bit of the type of leader that's best suited for it. But I think if you just think about effectiveness, uh, it comes in all different shapes and sizes. And I think that's sort of one of the challenges of you know, leading leaders is that it's not a cookie cutter approach. It's not sort of, hey, here's the playbook for being a good leader of, you know, leading leaders is that it's not a cookie cutter approach. It's not sort of, hey, here's the playbook for being a good leader. Just press play and you'll be good at it. Um, if only it was that easy. Well, so what do you think some of the most important leadership and soft skills are for someone to be effective within the context of Thumbtack. I mean, I've heard you talk about self-awareness and other things, but yeah. what do you think are the most important skills? I think of finding people who are high confidence and low ego. Mm -hmm. um, and I think both those are really important. Um, high confidence is really about having opinions, having a point of view, being curious, uh, being um, sort of impatient. Um, and I think that's really, really powerful. Um, but low ego is critical because often that trait tends to overconfidence, right? It tends towards, um, uh, sort of overweighting your opinions. Um, but someone who's low ego to me is oriented in getting to the right answer to finding, getting to success, having the team win, having the company achieve its goals rather than necessarily being the author and sort of signing their name to it. 
and they're also self-aware. Uh, I think self-awareness is a part of low ego where you can reflect on your own sort of strengths and weaknesses. Um, in terms of like traits that I look for in leaders, like high confidence, low ego is kind of the, the headline, but self-awareness is probably the single thing I'm most interested in assessing, especially early on um, in meeting a new exec, because <clears throat> an exec isn't going to be great at everything. They need to spike in the way that you need them to spike for the role, but they're certainly going to have some blind spots and some uh, things that they're not that good at. And it's only when someone is self-aware and is um, comfortable with that and has figured out how to organize around it and solve for it, create habits and et cetera, uh, that they can be truly successful. So self-awareness is really key. And I want to talk about how you assess that in just a minute. But before that, you know, what is the process for someone becoming more self-aware? And, you know, like how, how did you become a more self-aware leader? Um, I think there's parts of it that are practice, and I think parts of it where I am um, fortunate in some sense. Uh, so the practice is I, my co-founder, um, is someone who has always really believed in, um, you know, love Cicero, love the Stoics, um, real kind of uh, someone who prided himself on sort of intellectual honesty. And I think that's something that Thumbtack has really benefited from, and I have certainly benefited from, because it created a culture of feedback that was um, without judgment. It's like, of course, there's feedback, like you're a human being. Uh, you're you're in a constant state of failure. Um, let's just start talking about it. And um, I I think that has sort of become part of Thumbtack. And as an example, like I share my 360 with the company and have for a long, long time. We actually the whole exec the, team. The entire company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just email all and just send it out. Um, and you know, a big part of that is to sort of enlist help, right? Because it's, especially with my direct team, you, you sort of share re your review to get help and getting better at these things. But more broadly, it's about setting the tone that everybody's got things to work on. And ultimately, it is useful to reflect on what they are, write them down, make goals, enlist sort of partners that can help you be accountable on them and get better uh, and sort of just rinse and repeat. Is that kind of vulnerability where you literally share what your, you know, your quote unquote weak at or what your development needs are with the rest of the company? Is that sort of vulnerability, weakness or power when you think of leadership effectiveness? Uh, I mean, I, I, I tend to believe it builds trust. Uh, so I'm inclined to do it. Um, and here's where something I've sort of learned about myself uh, over the years is like, I don't know if you're familiar with the big five sort of personality traits from psychology, but one of them is negative emotionality. It used to be called neuroticism, been rebranded to negative emotionality. Um, I've tested on the big five a few times. I got them zero on negative emotionality. Uh, and this was, you know, uh, a bias towards anxiety, worry, and in some sense sort of self-created anguish. Um, and I don't do very much of that. Um, you know, I feel like we got hard problems to solve. Like I'm not going to add to them by having my own sort of worries about myself or what you might think. Like if I think it's a good idea, 
on the merits, then we can go do it. So I don't get lost in that talk track too much. Do you think that you set the tone at the top by being vulnerable and sharing your development needs? Does that, in a sense, create a, sort of a culture of self-improvement or continuous learning or intellectual curiosity or, you know, always wanting to get better? Because, you know, I, I knew like a guy that I love is Brad Smith. He's the chairman of Intuit and he did the exact would, same thing. He would tape it to the door, his door of his office. Exactly. And so it reminds me of that story. And like, do you feel like that's had a trickle down effect on your entire culture? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the most salient thing it does is it lowers the embarrassment of having flaws and talking about them. Um, you know, if sort of the leaders can do it, then everybody should be able to do it. And that's kind of the most important thing, because we, I think, often are way too self-conscious about talking about that sort of thing. And often, you know, people we hire are, you know, they like have kicked ass in life, right? They got great grades and went to good schools and worked hard and had good jobs and had success. And like, you don't do that by uh, thinking of yourself as sort of needing a lot of work or having deficiencies or uh, failing. Um, and I think that's sort of inevitable when you're trying to build something new or do something hard. And so something I try to do or something we've done is to just lower the, yeah, the embarrassment, the, yeah. you know, but, but, so, but so you, you bring up a, a really interesting point. These are folks that haven't failed. You know, they've always overachieved their whole lives. And now they go into a company where you're trying to create something from scratch. And if you're not, you know, taking enough risk or failing, sometimes you're probably not stretching the boundaries far enough. So how yeah. do they bounce back? And is resilience another important quality for your people? Yeah, I mean, I think resilience is something, well, I, I think the great thing is that there's a lot of self-selection, right? In the sense that if you're not after some amount of adventure uh, in your day job, like you're not gonna join our type of business, right? You're gonna go to a even more mature public tech company that, you know, lots of pluses and minuses, but certainly more stable. And there are a lot of uh, risk-averse people for good reason, right? It's not a bad thing necessarily. Um, and there are better places than Thumbtack to go be risk-averse. And so I think there's a beautiful self-selection that like, hopefully what people see in sort of our values and what we look for, it attracts those who do wanna take things on and are comfortable kind of swinging for it and hopefully feel that Thumbtack is a place that they can do it sort of safely or with the support of those around them. Yeah. So I want to talk about, you, you mentioned Cicero and this, you know, stoic mentality, and I'm always amazed at how much volatility and ups and downs there are every single day in any CEO's life, much less, you know, a fast growing Silicon Valley company like yours. How do you keep a steady game face despite all of these ups and downs? You know, it, it just doesn't seem natural to a human being to be so stoic despite, you know, being on this emotional roller coaster ride. Yeah, I think my partner does it by deliberate practice and uh, reflects on it and works on it. And I feel like I'm just a bobblehead and I just pop right back up and it kind of, you know, just doesn't really affect me in the same way. Um, so I do think some of this is like uh, a fit. And actually here I should give my parents a lot of credit. Mm. Um, when I saw them build their companies, you know, my dad worked on his for 20 years, my mom for 17. 
So it wasn't something that like just happened. And uh, I think the lesson from that is the narrative we have today for sort of early entrepreneurs and how fast it can happen, how instant the success should be, is really a disservice uh, because most of these stories and really the biggest, most impactful ones take a long time. And, you know, Bill Gates has the quote that people overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in a decade. And I think that's really powerful. And so I saw that. And so I think that gives me a lot of perspective. And how about your partner? You said it, it's deliberate practice. What what does that mean? You know, for people that it doesn't come as naturally for, how can they get better at it? Have you ever heard of Benjamin Franklin's Pensies? Uh, uh, if you read his autobiography, you can see his notebook. And it's pen, I think the word is Pensies, which was basically him every day going through and marking up his personal dashboard of like, you know, did I, you know, pray in the morning? Did I, was I industrious? Like, how did I feel? Like he, he had this incredible self-reflection mechanism and he just charted it. And then he would think about, you know, when was I able to do more of the things that I wanted to do? When was I not? Um, my co-founder has that and has been doing it for a long, long time. Uh, so, so that's, that's what I mean. Soft, that's kind of soft, touchy feely stuff. And you know, such a hardcore Sequoia back venture capital business. I mean, does that stuff really matter? I mean, does that help to do things like that? Oh, you know, yeah. I'm playing I mean, devil's advocate, but no, no, no. I look, I, um, I think often founders are their own worst enemy. Uh, so the idea that it's worthwhile to invest in self reflection and invest in sort of yeah, building that awareness, I think, is really important. Um, and typically, yeah, it helps you think more clearly, helps you have more perspective, um, helps you work better with other people. And those are all really important. Well, let's go back to what you had said earlier. Let's talk about recruiting. At what point in Thumbtack's history did culture fit start to matter? Um. So I think that early on, um, well, I had no idea about like culture as a concept uh, early days. Um, and so I think typically what happens is culture is emergent from the self-selection that brings together that early team. And it's not something that is designed or engineered. It's not a proactive thing. It is just in the void that brings people together. Um, and then later, uh, there comes a day, and I think what, what started happening is we started recruiting at a scale where while we were still probably interviewing everybody, we weren't necessarily interviewing everyone early in the process, or like we wanted to scale the idea that somebody else could do a values fit interview. And so naturally it begged the question, well, what are our values? Uh, what is Fit. And that then precipitated that first exercise, which was really about, you know, self-definition and et cetera. And then, you know, we went from there. But early on, I think in some sense, like culture is a luxury. Like you're not thinking about it as an explicit thing because you're really just trying to, you know, help your customer um, and, and figure out what to do for them. So that comes later. That deliberate practice comes later. And you say culture is a luxury early on because at that point you just want to convince a few engineers to come join your team 
for some paper stock and not much money. And so culture comes yeah. later. Well, more that like it is culture as something that is explicitly defined, invested in, articulated is a uh, sort of luxury good. It comes later in the life cycle of a company. Early on, it's much more about that personal connection between those early people and their alignment towards the mission of the business. Like the first employee we met on a rafting trip and, you know, he had a huge impact. Um, beyond my CTO, the first two engineers we hired were, one of them was a college roommate of my buddy. Uh, at, and so, and then the two of them were living together. And so I met him through my, and so that's, you really need some, it's hard to hire someone like off the street because you're a nobody and your idea is enough thing. So why should anybody pay attention? But when you can connect through a friend, through an acquaintance, through some random setting that forces you to just talk for a while, maybe you discover that there is actually this shared interest or passion or alignment. And from there, you start to get excited about working together. Um, and then at some point later on, you say, oh, okay, let's actually define our culture. Let's sort of clarify it. Clarify because at first it's just sort of emergent. So you're not a nobody anymore, and now you have a pretty strong and incredible culture. So how do you tell, you know, if a headhunter or, you know, somebody in the firm, the company recommends somebody and they seem like a star performer on paper, uh, they have this great resume, but how do you tell if they're the right culture fit for Thumbtack before you make an offer? Yeah. Um, so First off, I think there's two parts of being a successful exec. It's having the talent and capability that's a fit for the role and really aligning their superpower with what's most needed uh, from that leader. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, that there's a fit um, broadly defined with the organization and values, ambition, work style, et cetera. <laughs> and I'd say that Broadly, I use someone's body of work and references and conversations about that to really understand their talent. And I think that's something that the, you know, it's kind of easy to fake execs are really good at talking. And so it's kind of easy to fake being knowledgeable in an interview, especially if I'm hiring for something that I've never done before. Right. In, so in case, kind of, if you're talking to somebody with 10 or 20 years experience yeah. in a one hour period, hopefully they can talk so, about it for one hour. Exactly. But if you talk to three or four or five references from you know the last 10 years of their career, you're going to get a pretty clear picture of what they were or weren't actually doing. And that's a really important and powerful signal to me. Then on the fit question, that's where I, I sort of trust my gut more and the market signal less because I feel like I'm a better calibrated in making that assessment. And there, um, yeah, I'm looking to, to hear... Um, so like one of the ways I do it, uh, one of the questions that I'm curious about is um, what's your proudest professional accomplishment? Hmm. And I'll spend 15, 20 minutes talking about that. And I want to understand a, like, am I impressed? Right. Cause some people will be proud about something that I don't think is impressive. So that's not a fit. Um, some people will talk a lot about themselves and not very much about their teams. And that says a lot. Um, but I think the more revealing bit is uh, you then say, all right, thank you, know, thank you for all that. I learned a lot. Um, now I'm interested in sort of like the opposite, uh, you know, not necessarily all the way to shame, but regret. Um, and, you know, what's a professional moment of great regret? 
And look, a lot of people will claim not to have one or to say, oh, well, there's some, but there's no one big one. And that to me is like, uh, we, we take a pass on that person if they can't come up with one. It's a huge red flag. Yeah, absolutely. Almost certainly. Um, what I'm really interested in is the person who kind of just like sighs deeply and is like, Oof. like where to begin? Um, because realistically, if you're trying to do big, hard things, like you're going to have a lot of those and not because there's any shame in having a lot of them because it's hard and you're not going to get them all right. And I'm much more interested in someone who like swung big or was part of something um, hard uh, or ambitious that, you know, looks back and say, well, like we messed it up. Like if I was doing this again, I would attack, you know, this whole other direction, I, you know, whatever it was. Um, that to me is really powerful. So if these, you know, I always want to hear about people's work. I, I don't want sort of general answers to sort of like general questions, I want sort of specific stories uh, from your past. And through that, get a sense of like how comfortable in your own skin are you? Yeah, and I love your approach, and I apologize again for playing devil's advocate. But on the skill side, well, two well, two questions really on the culture fit side and on the skill side. On the skill side, if you're looking for that superpower, how can you tell if that person has more broad-based leadership potential? Like if you're zeroing in on a particular skill for something you need right now, how can you tell if they can stretch into something more broadly down the road? Yeah. Um... So first off, I think um, it's worth being explicit with skills. I think um, people, when they make their rec for an exec, often have too many things on that list. It's a laundry list of skills and capabilities, but really you want them to be great at two or three things. And so in the search, I think it's powerful to zero in on those because then when you're building you know, uh, your list of, of people to go after or sort of asking references, uh, background information, you can say, hey, is this person, you know, how would you rate them at this skill? You know, how would they rank among the best people you ever worked with at that skill? And like, then they can give you good feedback. Um, and then separately for the question of, you know, how do you get confident somebody could scale? Um, just that they've succeeded in a lot of contexts before, um, that they have sort of a steep curve kind of everywhere they, they've been, that they have a real learning orientation, um, they're ambitious and really hungry. Um, and then it's, again, I'm, I'm probably intuitive and sort of more gut driven in these moments, but like, there's some people that, you know, I believe in and I want to, I want to bet on, or I get excited about betting on. So anytime somebody says intuitive and gut feel, no matter how good their intuition is, I always figure they've at least made a mistake once or twice. Have you ever made a big hiring mistake and how'd you deal with that? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it taught me a lot about the process to hire. And so I think one thing that was, has always been true at Thumbtack, we've hired exceptionally talented people. But there's times that those talents weren't a specific or exact fit with what the business needed. And that's a tough lesson to learn. And that, that's, that's tricky because like person kind of did nothing wrong. I've been great at what they are great at, but it's not what you need. And that's a problem that you have to solve. And then the other sort of dimension is that often they are a great talent and are a great talent, the things you need them to be great at, but maybe they're not a great fit uh, with the team. And that could be in, you know, work style, ambition, um, you know, how first principles driven are they versus sort of throw it on the wall and sort of reason from analogy driven, uh, like all these little things that just go into a way a place works. And that typically 
is the bigger issue. And so I trust my gut less at assessing pure talent. And I look to body of work and references and I trust my gut more at assessing fit um, sort of over the years. I love it. So, so you get the great people into the company. What do you think are some of the biggest leadership challenges that your people, these super talented people that you've recruited and assessed and assimilated into the company? What are some of the biggest challenges that they face? You know, fear of failure, not being able to say no. What, in your opinion, what have you seen the trips up otherwise really successful rising stars? Unfortunately, life is more cruel than that. So the biggest challenge for everybody is typically an over application of their greatest strength or a misapplication of the greatest strength. What do you so imagine the incredible team builder, the ultimate coach and supporter who takes too long to realize that people on their team are not the right people and that they need to sort of change it. The incredibly passionate leader who is driven and committed and, and an incredible motivator and leader, but at times lets that passion become personal and, you know, throw daggers. Um, the person who is relentless about checking things off the list and getting things done and being pitch perfect on doing the work sometimes misses the forest for the trees because uh, they got their nose to the grindstone. And like, that's the real challenge. You rarely get something that's like, oh, you're really good at this. And then you have this random, terrible thing about you that we're going to try and like clean up with some makeup. Um, the hard part is like, it's usually something that they're, that makes them really, really great that has the failure mode that shows up that you have to deal with. And that's the cruelty of life, right? Yeah, it's exactly. Like the big question, you know, especially in your seat to have a huge impact, what does Thumbtack do to help those people become better leaders? to deal with this big cruelty of life? I mean, I think most importantly, uh, believe in them, you know, create a place where uh, they can work on it, um, where they can be open about it, where we can talk about it in a way that is um, not personal, that is not sort of existential, but it's just part of doing the work and getting better. Um, I think investing in sort of a business partner function and really arming these people with, you know, coaches and sort of a support infrastructure is really powerful because um, it's hard stuff to do on your own, right? And it's also sometimes really hard to do with your boss uh, because there's a certain dynamic there. But when you have a business partner uh, who's sort of there to help you succeed, that's often someone who can really help coach you. So yeah, all that sort of stuff. So I told you I was going to ask, but as your company continues to grow, uh, and you've, you know, you follow through with the strategy that you talked about earlier. What are two or the three leadership development things on your plate? Yeah. So <clears throat> I feel like I have, um, there's like a evergreen one that I'm kind of always reflecting on. I'm trying to be better at. And then there's often a, in this moment of the business, um, there's an opportunity for me to sort of get better at something. Mm -hmm. um, the evergreen one is um, praise and recognition. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, I can spend most of my time and energy thinking about, you know, what didn't go well. If you just think about this conversation, right? Uh, 
we talked a lot about sort of the, the warts and the wrinkles and that's powerful. It's important to getting better, but it can also sort of overshadow uh, an appreciation and recognition of the really good things and the really powerful things. And you know, I think I certainly have that bias. I think Thumbtack has that bias and it shows up in different ways at different scales, but that's something I always trying to get better at. And honestly, still continue to fail at. So that's like, um, can you give, an example, give me an example of how you would like to do that better? I mean, it runs really deep, right? So, you know, one of the things that I've come to recognize, it's not that I don't necessarily see or appreciate um, great work, but there's almost this belief that if you spend your time like high-fiving, you're defining su success down or you're wasting time at getting better. Um, and that's like, um, you know, that's like a wrong view. Like that's like a, there's a free lunch in the world that I'm not eating because I have this like weird worry that in being too complimentary, like we all of a sudden get soft um, and then like, you know, nothing happens anymore. Uh, and that's clearly wrong. Uh, and yeah, I've built habits to mitigate for that sort of extreme view, but um, it's kind of always there. It's hard to sort of just shake. Is that one of those things, you know, sort of from startup to grown up that a lot of leaders sort of need to overcome, you know, the, the fact that they needed to show that confidence and aggressiveness and narrow focus to get the funding and to build a business. But over time, as you become a more mature company and CEO that you develop, you know, you, an appreciation for things that you may have once thought was soft, but actually really has an impact on the company. Yeah, and I think there is a lot of those learnings along the way. Um, I think it's also just kind of how I was raised. And so it's sort of just in there from the get-go. Um, I see it in more than just me and my family. Um, mm. But yeah, it, and it's it has its, again, like it has its great strengths. I think Thumbtack is a company that did not catch lightning in a bottle, right? Mm. You have some startups that like, whether through genius or good fortune, just catch lightning in a bottle and the thing just takes off day one and it's almost miraculous. Um, you guys grinded we, it out for a while. Yeah, we are not the opposite of that story, right? And that works only because you're willing to sort of reflect on what's not working and getting better and sort of grinding out, you know, these sort of small gains day in and day out. So it's a great strength, but it does blind you to, yeah, some amazing things and just sort of recognizing people, making them feel great about themselves, which is awesome. And were you about to give me one other developmental? Oh yeah, then there's some more specific ones. It's much more boring, but um, it's really in thinking about uh, the context in which uh, conversations are happening, particularly around new ideas. Um, I am someone who benefits a lot from external processing, sort of like workshopping an idea with another smart person at the company to just talk through it, think through it, work through it. Um, with the reality that you need to sort of like have the right shared context as that the idea becomes not just an idea, but ultimately a decision maybe. And keeping the right group of people sort of along that journey is sort of, um, yeah, something that as we've gotten bigger, I have to do more explicitly. It doesn't just happen in forums I'm in. And that's more of like a tactical growth learning. Um, 
that one I'd like to believe is much easier to solve than the other one. So you've given so many great, powerful um, examples of culture and leadership development. I mean, why should someone come work at Thumbtack, you know, given he or she has a ton of other offers on the table? Because the work matters, that it really makes a difference uh, in people's lives. I had a, um, I heard a pro uh, recently um, to a private chef uh, for a dinner at my house and you know, this woman at the end uh, thanked me. She sort of said, look, I've never been making more money in my life um, since when I found Thumbtack, and I'm so proud for what I can provide for my family now. And, you know, she didn't know me when I hired her that I worked at Thumbtack, but once sort of... She so you've given so many great, powerful um, examples of culture and leadership development. I mean, why should someone come work at Thumbtack you know, given he or she has a ton of other offers on the table. Because the work matters, that it really makes a difference uh, in people's lives. I had a, um, I heard a pro uh, recently um, to a private chef uh, for a dinner at my house. And, you know, this woman at the end uh, thanked me. She sort of said, look, I've never been making more money in my life um, since when I found Thumbtack and I'm so proud for what I can provide for my family now. And, you know, she didn't know me when I hired her that I worked at Thumbtack, but once sort of she heard the story, she felt sort of compelled to tell me that. And, you know, we hear a lot of those stories and, you know, it's a partnership that we have with these folks to, you know, help them take advantage of the talents and time that they have and pair that with sort of our ability to help them find more customers and grow um, to make that magic happen. And that feels really good. And um, that is sort of tangible. Uh, secondly, that you get to work with great people on hard problems. Um, and look, if you don't want to work on hard problems, we're not the right place. Um, but if you want to do that in the construct of great people in a supportive environment, to me, that's like what has kept me going, you know, this long, like the impact is that long-term motivation, the like year in and year out, but the day to day, it's all about the people and the problems. And I think we've got some of the best. So am I going to get my personal concierge? What, what's Thumbtack going to look like in five or even 10 years as a final question? Yeah, so um, I aspire it to be a technology and product that delivers you that sort of complete and custom and personalized care that I think you see in that concierge. But ultimately, what Thumbtack should be is synonymous with home care. You know, this idea that it's one of the most important things in your life, your home, and there's no one to help care for it. And we want to be that home care solution that helps you with the continuous care of your home from moving in to moving out and everything in between. And through that, I think we can play a big part in people's lives and yeah, make things better. Marco is maybe one of the most brilliant, equal parts left and right brain leaders that I've interviewed in a long time. Mark my words, he's destined for greatness, but he doesn't show it through extreme rah-rah charisma. He has a more even-keeled, vulnerable, thoughtful leadership style that sets the right tone at the top for the entire Thumbtack company and culture. It's not hard to see why the company has a culture of continuous improvement and is so innovative. 
If you like this podcast, we invite you to sign up for weekly shows at www.imperfectleaders.com. And if you're a student, we invite your suggestions for future interviews. What iconic leaders in business, sports, and politics would you like to see us interview?